It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw, the executive editor of the Express News Group. We're the publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, and the Sag Harbor Express, as well as the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. And our panelists today are uh, Grant Parpin from the uh, Times Review Media Group. Good morning, Grant. Good morning. Good to be here. This is why I have to write everything down. I forget. <laughs> you know, I look at you and freeze up. Uh, and Brian Cosgrove, who is the longtime host of the Afternoon Ramble on WLIWFM right here. Uh, and we're happy to have him here. Hey, Brian. Hey, Joe. Hey, good to be with you guys, Grant and Bill. We always feel like paper talk isn't enough time for us to talk about the news. So uh, it's good to have you on here to expand a little bit more. So let's let's start over in Southwold with Grant. Uh, You guys did a great job this week following up on a story uh, from about a year ago. I think the the Southwold police had a retirement party and there was kind of there were some issues with it and kind of a lack of response from uh, the local law enforcement community. What did you find out this week in your follow up? Yeah, well, you know, we've heard from a number of people in recent weeks. We had a letter to the editor last week saying, you know, it's been a year now since this retirement party. We're just shy of a year. It was uh, Friday, May 27th. So next week will be a year. And uh, there was supposed to be a report. The town board authorized to have an independent investigator take a look at what happened that night. Remind us what's alleged to have happened that night. Yeah. So that night uh, there was a police sergeant, uh, Stephen Zuhoski, who retired. And they had his walkout, the traditional ceremony. And now keep in mind, we're two months into the pandemic. There's a limit of gathering of 10 people at the time. And he had a massive retirement party, a couple hundred people there, cars all lined up and down the road. There was a fireworks show uh, and a lot of masklessness posted to social media. And this upset neighbors, uh, people who are going to be upset when there's a loud party anytime, but in the middle of a pandemic. And in particular, it upset a group of young people who started, they were texting each other, hey, look at this retirement party that's going on. You know, I just had a college graduation. I couldn't go to one girl, lost her father, and they, they couldn't have a funeral for him. And these young people and a few other people, we know of at least uh, four people who called. And they called the police and said, Hey, you know, there's this retirement party going on for this police officer. Can you do something about it? Nobody's allowed to have these parties right now. And the police didn't apparently do anything. We saw at least one photo was produced of a squad car there. But the next morning, I happened to be at a press conference with the chief of police. And I said to him, uh, Martin Flatley, I said, chief, um, what happened with this retirement party last night? I saw photos on social media. I mean, how was that allowed? People must have been complaining about it, right? he said, no, nah, nobody was complaining about it. I'm like, oh, I guess if nobody complained about it, I don't know. And uh, he said, but I'll look into it for you. And then he emails me back and says, uh, no, nothing happened, no, no reports. And so I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And then I see people tweeting about how they called police. And so I start wow. calling around and I have everybody send me their call logs, text screenshots from their phones. And I could see they all called the direct line in uh, wow. at, least, at least six phone calls that I was. And that's just from people that I heard from. And uh, nothing was done. So the town board, uh, about a month later, then June, hired a special investigator to look into what happened. No, produ- no report was ever produced. So we're coming up on a year now, 11 months since the, the report began, the investigation began. And 
nothing, nothing's come of it. So we uh, obtained some documents from the town. The town of Southold actually has, it's a reporter's gift. They have every document they put online. Uh, they wow. use laser fiche. And if you're, it's not the easiest thing to navigate, but if you know certain terms to search, you can find things. And one of the things you can find is invoices. So we found the invoices from the lawyers that show what exactly has been done. They've deposed four police officers, two dispatchers. Uh, there's been several meetings, lots of phone calls back and forth. Uh, the town spent $8,500 so far, but no findings have been released yet. And it's going on 11 months. That's great watchdog work there, but um, it, it's unfortunate that, I mean, this is more than just bad optics, right? I mean, in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, middle of the pandemic. And now let's not forget what happened on May 25th too, the killing of George Floyd. Now I'm not going to compare a police retirement party to that, but think about where people's heads are at that moment in time and about police accountability. And it's, you know, two days after that and, you know, there's everything going on in Minnesota and it's on people's minds and things are very raw and police are willing to look the other way for a party for one of their own during a, during a pandemic. I mean, if they're willing to look the other way for something like a party, what else are they willing to look the other way for? And I'm not saying that they have looked the other way in South Old Town Police, but maybe there's a willingness to, maybe there's a feeling that they're above the law and, and that's certainly how people feel. Now, a lot of people, a lot of our readers have been upset with the coverage. We've stayed on it. We want to know why nothing happened. What is the discipline? What are the repercussions for that kind of behavior? And the police chief, he recommended, he did an initial report and he recommended apparently suspension, some level of discipline, whether it's fine, suspension, I'm not sure exactly. They never made that public. Um, but but he, he's even saying, you know, it's been a year since my report now too. Like, can can we do something about this? Can this, can this end? Can we put this behind us? And it continues to linger on. The uh, investigation is being done by an attorney named Justin Block. He's the former head of the um, Suffolk County Bar Association. He hasn't commented on the investigation, of, of course. And at the same time, we've also seen on the invoices that there's been calls back and forth with the district attorney's public integrity office. So there's been at least two conversations that he's had with the DA. And in one of the invoices, he notes that the DA had its own investigation going on into this. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. The second call from the DA happened to be right after our story and then Newsday's story ran about this. So that might have just been the DA like, why are you putting in the invoices that we're investigating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bill and Brian, this has real echoes. I mean, not only uh, there's been so much conversation about uh, police reform and at the local level uh, after last year. And uh, so much of that is about police accountability. And there's this nagging feeling that uh, the police control the flow of information, especially regarding uh, incidents that involve the police. And this whole thing reminds me, Bill, of what happened uh, in Southampton Village about, oh, it's gonna be 15 years ago at this point, uh, where uh, there you know, there was no press release ever issued on it. Let's put it that way. But there was a it there wasn't was actually the, wasn't in the blotter either. If I remember, it was actually it was, was it was it, in the blotter, but in a very veiled way. And we had to do some digging. But it turned out that an award ceremony for police departments all over the East End was held in Southampton Village. And after that uh, award ceremony, uh, at the after party at a local bar, uh, a group of off-duty police officers actually put a guy in the hospital. Um, and it wasn't until we were able to sort of dig out that story 
uh, and investigated that word came out about it. We would have never heard about it any other way. And I, I think, you know, Bill, th this is we are always fighting battles with the police over access to information. And, it, and it's about accountability. It is. And those battles continue today. Right? There was that incident and then there was an incident um, um, just a couple of years ago. And I don't want to say too much about it because it was a domestic incident, but there was a, a domestic incident where where uh, uh, I think it was a Suffolk County police officer um, allegedly um, got got physical with with an acquaintance um, and there was uh, police had responded and I think arrested Southampton Town Police responded and I think the person was arrested and um, and and we weren't informed of of that either and if it hadn't been for somebody for a tipster um, calling us and, and letting us know that this incident had happened um, then, then we wouldn't have known either. Now, now when you have domestic incidents, you know, police can can kind of have some um, some say as to what's released on that or not. But it sure looked at the time um, like maybe it was because this you know this this person was a was a police officer. And I think that that those are the if if the police were smart, those are the incidents where they really would want to get ahead of it and they would want to in, inform us just to to get rid of that that old opinion that, you know, that, that police officers are above the law and, you know, and, and, you know, hiding that stuff just kind of perpetuates all those, those old myths. And, you know, yeah. we're, we're still, we're still fighting for information today. We don't feel like from all of the departments we deal with that we, um, you know, that, that we get all the arrest reports and incident reports and, you know, and all that. And you just have to ask why. And I think one issue that we have always with police reporting is the only account that we usually have on these is from the police themselves. So they control the information. Like I was looking at on the edge of both our coverage areas this morning, there was a police involved shooting in Manorville. The details in that are pretty vague. There's no one's name is, is released in, in the release. And it's, um, you know, we we're at the mercy of do we report the police's narrative on this of what right. exactly happened? It's that guy was sleeping in the back of a car. There was some kind of struggle. He was shot and killed. He, and they they he they said he had a knife on him. I, I, but I you know that that's all that's really in there. Right. You know what what exactly right. happened there? True. And we we're only at the mercy of what police want to tell us. Right. Joe, I mean, you you had you had passed around an article. Um, uh, a month or so ago that, that talked about the George Floyd killing and, and what the original police press, press release had had um, had said. And I don't know, do, you, do you remember the details of that? He had a, he had a medical incident yeah. and, and died. And that was the that was what we were going to hear from that police from the Minneapolis Police Department if people hadn't been on the scene uh, taking video. And, and, you know, Brian, you know, when we're talking about these issues with with police accountability as a citizen, you just you want to know the whole story. Right. And, and I mean, I think part of the, we always we have a saying in our business that the cover up is often worse than the crime. And and if it, it turns out that way much of the time that that not giving the full story ends up hurting the department's worse than if they just be honest about these things up front and give everybody a chance to just hear the full story um, instead of just hearing some filtered version of it. That's right. Well, you know, after Grant gave such a great account of how they're trying to dig into what happened at this, this South Hall party last year. Um, and you said the first thing you said was that great watchdog reporting. 
And that's what you guys have to do. Now, as you guys know, we have great, uh, I admire these guys. They put their life on their line uh, on the line every day. I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a cop. And I appreciate what they do. But we've come to a point, and, I don't, and you guys are the last guys I have to tell, that if you criticize anybody of authority, especially people who have their lives on the line, there is a group of people who are like, don't even question them. You know, it's almost like there's, there's a small and then this group is getting bigger where they just deserve a free pass because of the extent of what they do for all of us. And that's that's that doesn't work because, as you just mentioned, Joe, we have to find things out in the long run. It's going to be better. The truth. Right. You can't escape the truth. The truth is the truth. And all these things, um, you know, you know, don't leave it alone. Um, you know, it's an attack on the police. All you guys are doing is your job. You're just trying to find out what happened. You're not it's not you're not alleging anything. You know, last night on the news, I saw this. They just released a two year old body cam tape from Louisiana of something that appears to be very brutal um, treating of an alleged suspect that the Louisiana police held on to for two years. And the fact that it even made the media wasn't it wasn't supposed to. It wasn't officially you know, released yet. And this is a two year old tape where it looks very questionable on how they treated a suspect down in Louisiana. So I know we're local here, but in fact, you're right. I mean, these guys have a lot of a lot of juice. They have a lot of authority. But at the same time, they have to start to realize that looking at what they do is part of what journalism does. Right. And and I think what's happening in Suffolk County right now with the police is they really control everything. I mean, if you look at the elections last November, it wasn't Republicans or Democrats who who dominated in Suffolk County. It was the Suffolk PBA that dominated. They got three candidates running on critical race theory funded by some shadow organization. Politico did great reporting last week on this in Smithtown. Suffolk PBA PBA is donating to those school board campaigns. It's incredible. And they got in these these three individuals, um, they had, you know, if I look at what happened in the, the Senate race, Anthony Palumbo, um, you know, for the East End, backed by the PBA, in the assembly race, Laura Jen Smith running against Jody Giglio, the PBA got Jody Giglio in Albany. And yeah, they're playing a much bigger role and, and they're playing a big role in the Southampton Village election. Uh, as well, uh, they've been they've been very visible as an anti uh, the incumbent mayor Jesse Warren. Uh, they've been really going after him. There's signs out there now making the police a big issue in that race. But you know, before we move on, because I do want to talk about the village police situation, um, this conversation brings up a couple of related topics. One is I'm thinking about the shooting in Columbus that came right as Derek Chauvin was being convicted. Um, they, the police there released the video of that uh, incident very quickly. And I think we could spend an entire program debating that incident, but it definitely showed the ambiguity that police officers face, that, that in that shooting, which was a real tragedy, the police officer did have to make a decision about the safety of other people on the scene too. And I think by releasing that tape as quickly as they did, they did get in front of that conversation because you can have a debate about whether that, you know, the issues involved, but it didn't, it could have looked a lot worse with, with a 16 well, year old girl killed. And, and you had the video and, and I wanted to, to comment on that and, and back to the, the point that Brian made is, is these dash cam videos and, and the, and the personal videos, the police officers wear 
um, I, I think were all recommendations in most of the um, the, the studies that the local local East End Police Departments did over the last year at the behest of the governor. Um, they, they all recommended uh, body cams for, for police and none of the South Fork departments anyway um, currently have the body cams. And I think that those are just um, a, a great tool to to allow officials um, and the public to to see to see what happened and to be able to judge. Um, you know, and, and then when it gets to a point, if there are ever charges filed for for the jury to be able to see that stuff. And, and certainly in the Chauvin trial, that that was it was critical that it was. I mean, I think those were personal videos, not body cam videos. But um, but the, the technology, I guess, is my point of the technology that we have today needs to be utilized. And it sort of changes all that narrative and that old narrative of. Um, you know, perhaps police sometimes not being as as open about things as they used to be. If you've got that video evidence right there, it's hard to uh, it's hard to dispute that. And they don't have the body cams in any of the five East End towns. They do have them in Suffolk. And Newsday did some good reporting recently showing uh, police officers. It was a traffic stop in Mount Sinai where the, the suspect was getting roughed up. And I think it was a guy who stole a car. I'm pretty sure that those were the details. But the guy's getting shoved around by the cops and then you see the one cop like, I'm going to turn around here. You know, <laughs> it literally turns around so that they could rough him up some more, presumably. Um, and the guy, the guy with the camera so was turning around. That was yeah. Point. yeah. Yeah. Newsday obtained the video and he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm turning around here. Do you think, you know, and that's one, that's one problem is the, the body cams aren't going to be a panacea. They're, they're, yeah. they're not going to. They're not going to solve all this. And the East End Departments, uh, at least on the North Fork, and I'm sure it's on the South Fork, too, they say how expensive it is, how it's going to be really difficult to uh, satisfy that recommendation because how expensive it is. But yet here, and particularly with the Suffolk County Police Department, we have such well-funded police departments <laughs> on Long Island. This And the uh, whole notion of defunding the police, I've never I've never been in a conversation with somebody who's like, you know what, we need to defund the police. You know, it's just, it's, it's rhetoric. Uh, and it's it's really exaggerated. And our police, quite to the contrary, are really well funded. They're really well paid on the East End. And the money should be found for these body cams. It's, it's not going to solve every problem, but it's going to hold these police officers much more accountable. They should be held accountable like any public officials are held accountable. Absolutely. Remember, though, too, that we've just we started this conversation talking about the difficulty of getting information out of these departments, basic information. Imagine when you have to catalog and process videos from all of your officers um, who there won't be any incidents, but you still got to keep that video just in case it may become important later. Uh, Getting that that video from police departments, I don't think is going to be the easiest thing in the world, but I think it would be nice to have, have that as another check uh, to hold police accountable. Uh, I, I think this, you're, I think you're right. But I think in, in other areas of the country, there's legislation being developed that, that addresses that, 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 um, that compels the, the police departments and the governments to release, uh, release video when, when there's a, a death, at least to families, I think within a certain amount of time. Um, you know, allowing them to process it and all that. So it has to come hand in hand with good legislation and, you know, and good lobbying. And in fairness to the police, the police do seem to really want it. I know the chiefs up on the North Fork and and they say the departments, they, they do want the body cams. So I, I think it's not protect- like the police are saying they don't want it, They're but they are saying it's expensive and the lawmakers are saying, where are we going to come up with this money? 
it protects them too. I mean, from from false accusations and, and allegations. Yeah, I mean, I think the the ubiquity of the cell phone video has changed the way we view policing now, and it's uh, leading to more some more accountability. So maybe this is another step. So uh, this is behind the headlines here on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group, and on our panel today, Grant Parpin from the Times Review Media Group, and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM. Um, a related topic. Uh, which which has been kind of interesting to watch, Bill, is the situation in Southampton Village. And uh, what happened this week was really fascinating because last week the big story was that uh, Mayor Jesse Warren commissioned a study of the police department. And it was meant to be an operational study that uh, was supposed to come back with ways of tightening up the department and saving money and maybe improving operations. Uh, he had a task force uh, also that he had assigned to look at the issue. And the task force actually brought the results of that study to the village board a week ago. But this week, uh, we actually heard from the person who conducted the study himself and had a very different story. Yeah, uh, uh, super, super fascinating. So so this task force came before the board last week and, and had was very critical of, of the police department, um, very critical of spending, overtime spending, critical of uh, the, the p- police force paying for um, officers in, in the school district, critical of the department paying for a canine unit that was used by other departments, um, in, alleging that, that there was uh, waste and, and mismanagement. Um, um, and they had a bullet point uh, list of, of all these uh, issues with the department. Um, referring to the, the report as the Hartnett uh, report, um, which, which was compiled and, and conducted by Ed Hartnett and, and his company. He came before the board this week and, and he um, um, said he was surprised by uh, the presentation uh, from the the task force members that it wasn't didn't accurately um, portray what what his report in his view. Um, he came in and he said he wanted to uh, to clear up confusion and misconceptions, um, and pretty much said that um, you know he was very positive in, in speaking about the um, the police department, the, the force and its and its members and 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 what they do. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the most interesting thing to me was you, you mentioned it, that one of the words the task force used in their passing this report on to the village board was mismanagement. That's a word that doesn't appear anywhere in the Hartnett report. And right. Ed Hartnett was pretty clear that that wasn't his, the, the conclusion that he came to. And it's it's interesting because the mayor, Jesse Warren, has made no you know, there's no mystery here. He believes the police department that the, the village is spending about a third of its budget on the police department. Uh, he believes the, the police chief is overpaid. The police chief right now is contract expired. And uh, there's been a lot of animosity in those negotiations. And the chief, the, the, the mayor has been surprisingly open in his criticism of how much the police chief is making. Uh, it's clear that he, he brought in Ed Hartnett, who's, who's got a, a long history with uh, police departments and, and seems qualified to do this kind of study, that he chose him to do the study. 
He chose the members of his task force. And I think he really wanted this to come back uh, and really hit the police department hard. But the Hardnett report did have some very specific uh, suggestions to improve things, but it's not nearly the uh, the burn it all down report that I think uh, the mayor was looking for. And I think his task force tried to deliver that uh, for him. And and I think credit goes to Mr. Hartnett for, for clarifying. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, they, you know, and it, and it shouldn't go without saying that there's been bad blood between the mayor and the, and the police um, department since since he's come on board two years ago. And the, the police PBA, um, you know, filed a, a, a you know, a, a motion of, of no no confidence in in the mayor. Um, and his and his abilities to you know to help lead the the police department and fund the police department. It was over a, a number of funding issues, that type of thing. And the allegations are, and the, and the mayor kind of denies this is, is that you know is, is that the mayor would like to um, uh, abolish the police department or, or cut it down and bring in um, you know Southampton Town Police Department or another department to kind of um, do the policing in the village. And I, I think that. Um, um, you know, he, he's touting that as, as an economic benefit. But I, I, I think it's ahead. important, though, to say I don't think the mayor has ever actually said that he wants to do that. I think that the critics of the mayor have said all along, and Grant, this goes back to uh, what you talked about earlier, this idea of defunding the police. I, I think that's been thrown around by critics of the mayor. I don't think the mayor's ever actually said that. There were rumors that the mayor had been talking in those terms on the campaign trail, but we've never been able to to ascertain whether that's accurate or not. And I've spoken with the mayor and he's pretty adamant that his intention is not to eliminate the village police department, which is one of the accusations is that he wants to let the town take over and just eliminate the village police department. He's told me that that's not the case, but this goes to your point, Grant, police departments and PBAs, and, and in this case, the village PBA certainly is involved, um, are getting much more involved politically, uh, not just at the village level, but you mentioned they're even getting involved in things like school board elections. There's much more politicization of the police departments these days. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the North Fork, there's a good example of we don't have village police departments here, but we once did. We had the Greenport Police Department and they, they did get rid of it. And it had its share of problems and people do not talk about it on the North Fork as if, oh, you know, we really wish we still had that Greenport Police Department. Uh, people, I think, for the most part, feel well served by Southwold Police Department. I, you know, I hear things like, well, you know, if we had our own department, maybe this wouldn't happen, or we could use some more patrols here. But you don't really hear that very much. And you do start to wonder about all the village police departments, all these layers of government that we have on Long Island. Now, I don't follow Southampton closely. I'm not commenting specifically about the Southampton Village Police Department, but I do wonder how necessary are these village police forms? Could they be covered by the town the same way Greenport is now covered by the town? I think by my count, there are five village police departments in Southampton and East Hampton town. Uh, And it's important for people who don't understand that Suffolk County Police provides local policing in much of the county, but out here, the village departments and the town departments uh, take over that responsibility and the county's really got a supplemental role. Um, but yeah, and, and, and I think the, the discussion is that the town and village police departments provide a lot more of a local 
policing, but it's not a cheap thing for a village or a town to have. And, and that's always the, the push pull that you have on the subject, but, uh, you know, actually eliminating those police departments, not, and again, don't spin this as defund the police. (laughs) It's not defund the police, but it's, but if you did eliminate those kind of departments, that would actually be a conservative approach, a fiscally conservative uh, approach. And it's interesting how conservatism has changed so much beyond fiscal conservatism to it's really become all about law and order. And I think so much of that is the influence of the police unions. Yeah, I think you're right, Brian. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, it's such a black and white world, it seems these days. And really, you know, that old saying the devil is in the details, kind of like you were talking about the fact that, you know, uh, Mayor Warren never said defund the police. He may may have alluded to it behind the scenes, but somebody takes the argument and counters with either he said that or they uh, think that's what he wants to do. And that's just, as you guys well know, this is, you know, politics on a local level all the way up to the very top. We're dealing that with now with the capital situation, right? This happened or this didn't happen or, you know, it, and the job that you guys have, that's the tough job. People don't want to, people want to know, don't, they want to believe what they want to believe, right. especially when it comes to something like this and they don't want to hear it, you know, and that's, I think that what I've seen with politicians across the board we need folks who can deal with constructive criticism a little bit better, you know, be really concerned. I think it's everybody gets their back up and everything is black and white and they start throwing arguments that weren't even part of the initial discussion. And then before you know it, you're just the whole thing is convoluted. Well, you're, you're right. I mean, and this is becoming the critical issue in, in the mayor's race, which, you know, uh, you know, Mayor Warren is, is running against former mayor. Uh, Michael Irving, that election is is the middle of uh, of next month. And, you know, and, and the political signs, rather than seeing political lawn signs that, you know, that, that, you know, have a candidate's name on them, one of the most dominant in the village right now is, is our signs that say, save the police, mm. um, you know, alluding, alluding, making an accusation that if, if, if Mayor Warren is reelected, then, then the police will go. And, and to Joe's point, he's never said that, but it has certainly become the, the, the political issue. And, and, you know, and the, and whether it's, it's Mr. Irving's campaign or whether it's just an anti-Jesse campaign and there certainly is that going on um you know promoting this idea that that jesse's gonna that mayor warren's gonna uh, eliminate the police department right it's not that you know if that old saying if you keep you know if you pushing a lie keep pushing a lie it becomes the truth it's not i'm not saying it's that extreme but you keep saying something and eventually it gets accepted I think I think lessons were learned from the national politics of the last few years, and it's unfortunately leaking all the way down to the local level. And I think I think that's exactly what we're seeing play out in Southampton Village right now. No question. Uh, This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, Grant Parpin from the Times Review Media Group and Brian Cosgrove from WLIWFM are our guests. You know, I, I don't want to let it pass. I want to mention at least briefly that there was a vote this week in the House regarding the creation of a commission to study what happened on January 6th. And uh, it was approved with uh, it was approved on a fairly bipartisan basis. There were there were quite a few uh, Republican votes that were in favor of that. And that entire 
idea of a commission was negotiated between the two parties. Uh, our own Congressman Lee Zeldin voted against the creation of that commission. And I think it's important to note that. And it's important to note that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Grant, but since January 6th, when Congressman Zeldin went on the House floor after that insurrection happened and delivered remarks that directly challenged the legitimacy of the election, he hasn't been available to comment and explain that position to any of the local media, um, despite frequent attempts. And I've just made attempts again this week and can't even get a reply from the congressman's office anymore. Um, he is clearly focused on his run for governor, but yeah. it's it's intensely troubling to me that our congressman is not making himself available to the media to discuss such a momentous position. And, and now he's voted against this commission. We will never have a chance to ask him about that. We may get a written statement at some point, but he's not making himself available. Am I correct? That's not just us that's experiencing that. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. Uh, I, and he, he really hasn't made himself that available to the media or the public in general during his time. Uh, you know, I think when he first came into office, I remember I, I could get him on the phone. Um, yeah. And, and I, I don't cover him as directly anymore. So in fairness to him, I, I really very rarely write a Lee Zeldin, so I don't have reason to get him on the phone. Uh, but uh, personally, but um, yeah, he's just he hasn't been very responsive. He he was criticized often for not wanting to host town halls when that was all the rage in the beginning of the Trump administration. And he's aligned himself very much. He's very, he's, he's the, our Trumpian congressman. You know, he is, uh, he is very much in line with that. And it, it's kind of amazing that all the things that we study in DC, all the different things that have commissions or special investigations. I mean, steroids in major league baseball was a thing Congress was worried about at one point. To not want to investigate this, I mean, this seems like that this is the issue that him and others are saying there's nothing to see here, there's nothing to investigate here is actually pretty frightening. I mean, the events of what happened on January 6th, watching that on TV, that was like nothing I've ever seen. In this and country. especially since since Mr. Zeldin was right in the middle of it. And and yeah. and Bill, to, to put this into context, I have to say, I think Mr. Zeldin, until roughly January 6th, he was one of the more accessible elected officials that we dealt with. We, we dealt with Mr. Zeldin and his office constantly. We were able to access Mr. Zeldin on a regular basis. He was always available for, for interviews. Uh, it's a marked difference since January 6th. And I think that's what's so alarming about this. If that were just the way he conducted business, it's one thing. But there is a line of demarcation and it runs pretty much through January 6th. It appears that way from from what from what I've heard, though, I mean, he was he was accessible to us. But but I think there were there were other publications where he was less accessible to and maybe other publications that had been uh, critical of him. And, and we were pretty critical of him after after the insurrection. And we wrote, you know, uh, some strong editorials and, and we had done written an article. Mike Wright wrote that, that great article that kind of debunked some of the facts in his. Was actually Brent, speech. Brent, 
Brendan O'Reilly. I'm sorry, it was Brendan yeah, O'Reilly. That was a yeah. great piece. Brendan did a great job. Of yeah, that. he really, really did. He, he researched. That. He researched every line in in that speech, and and so I don't know. Does that does that have an effect on on the congressman's accessibility or not? Um, you know, we we know that he had he had kind of uh, been mad at, at some other publications in in the past and stopped speaking to them. So maybe this was just um, our turn. But it it seems like um, at this point he's just not very accessible to any publication, unless you're OA, OANN. And, or, and I don't uh, I don't know how you you run a run a campaign for governor if you're not going to talk to the media. I think that's, is he? That's really I mean. Since Plum Island, which was what, November or December, I mean, I haven't heard of him really even discussing any local issues at yeah. all. I mean, if no, you go, and, and I think if you were to do a, a great analysis to do, uh, and please, someone else run with this because it's a lot of work, uh, <laughs> <laughs> would be to just break down his social media because that's really the only way he's communicating that. And I guess yeah. his, his, his emails, but uh, to just break that down and what percentage of that is about local issues? I'd say it's close to zero. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really and how much of it is even federal issues, what he's talking about. I mean, all he's talking about is Cuomo. Well, I think he's focused on the, the governor's race now. And Brian, this goes back to I think Bill's right. I think we it was sort of our I, we've been very critical of of Mr. Zeldin along the way. But I think we've also been very respectful. And certainly when we've dealt with them, we've been very respectful of him. And I don't think we've been disrespectful in our criticism, um, even though it's been really tough at times. But Brian, you said earlier, we need people who are willing to take some criticism and constructive criticism. And it, our, our, our representative in Washington can't just go silent because he's mad at us. I mean, that's just not that's not acceptable. Yeah, no, it's not. You're right. And it's it, and you, Joe, you alluded to it. And I know Grant and uh, and Bill know it, too. It's it's trickled down from the, the way national politics have been handled in the last handful or in politics in general from day one. But it's really becoming intense where they if they don't want to deal with somebody or an organization, they just don't do it. If they don't want to talk to the public or do a press conference, they just don't do them anymore. I remember I was very concerned way back in the thick of the pandemic when I saw Mr. Belden at an Arizona Trump rally without a mask. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's my representative, you know, and I was like, what kind of example? And this is just a basic thing. This is not about I was like, what kind of example is he setting? He's sitting in a crowd. And that we lost some folks at Trump rally, some high profile, uh, uh, the, the one gentleman in particular, uh, an African-American part of the Trump. Uh, anyway, we lost because he got COVID and, and passed away. And I was I was very uh, disappointed at, the, at that time, you know, and he didn't even uh, really address the fact. Why were you at a Trump rally without a mask in the middle of, you know, the thick of this thing? So, yeah, exactly. One Which other thing, us- uh, actually, could I just say one more sure. point on this is I do Absolutely. feel like it is sort of in general that people, the, our elected officials are a little more distant. Uh, I, I remember if you go back, say, 15 years ago when I first came to the paper here, uh, Steve Levy used to always want to sit down. Tim Bishop used to always want to sit down with editorial boards. They were regular things that occurred. And Steve Levy was kind of the opposite extreme. He was he was offended by everything and he wanted to, t- to talk to you about it. You know, he right. letter to the editor yeah. Yeah. all the time. And he had, a, he had a, I, I thought a really tough notch press staff that they were uh, very active in reaching out. And, and he was, 
he was good with the, with the media and that, to that degree. And I think, so if you look at that office as well, I think Steve Malone's kind of the same way. I mean, I know during the pandemic, he did those daily press conferences, but I can remember asking old questions or hearing other people ask questions a lot of time. The answer was, I don't know. We'll get back to you on that. And yeah, I don't think they ever once got back to me on anything during the pandemic. So uh, I don't know that it's just uh, Lee Zeldin. I think it's just, I think part of it too is a lot of the people working in press offices, these aren't press people. These are political people now. Absolutely. Uh, these are, I, I, when's the last time, you know, uh, someone like a, like, like Mike Pitcher who worked down with you guys down at the press and then ended up in Brookhaven and he was yeah, a newspaper absolutely. guy, you know, yeah. I, I don't see those people anymore. What I see is campaign people uh, going into those positions. They're not press savvy and they don't give you what, what, what you need. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And the the conversation about Lee not wearing the mask allows us to transition over into talking about masks. And we had a big change. Brian, did you have something to add first? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no. um, No, it's it's, it. Oh, I'm sorry. I I thought you were trying to I did, did, but it it came and it went like so often things do. Apologies. I did not mean to cut you off. No, that's Apologies okay. for that. That's all right. But we'll springboard off your comment about masks and talk about okay. the fact that, uh, Brian, now we can go outdoors and indoors even if we're vaccinated without masks. It's a big step. And we had a story this week, too, in our papers about kids are now able to start getting the vaccine, and a lot of them seem to be eager to get it. Uh, this, this is sort of a key moment in this pandemic, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, I haven't really seen too much. You know, our studio is right on uh, on Hill Street. Uh, ever since the CDC made the announcement, what last week has it been? Is it how long ago did they make? Yeah, that it's been a week. Yeah. It's been a week already. Uh, I thought a pretty surprising announcement. It was it was you know pretty abrupt change in policy, um, but I think everybody you know is pretty much towing the line. Um, I actually heard something a day or two after that Costco had dropped their mask wearing, but I still wear my mask when I go to the one in Riverhead, and every I don't think the Riverhead Costco has dropped their mask. And um, so I, I would lean towards the fact that I'm keep going with the masks. And yeah, I we're are, are all four of us vaccinated here? I assume. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. and and I I'm with you, Brian. I you know I was in Stop and Shop the other day, and I'm still wearing my mask. And and I had to ask whether the store's policy oh, is still to wear a mask. And and nobody was really certain, but they thought it still was. But I'm with you. I I even though I'm fully vaccinated, I'm going to plan to wear a mask in places like Costco and the grocery store. And it is still required in places like doctor's offices and hospitals and nursing homes and schools. Those are still places where you have to wear a mask. And, you know, if I'm in a crowd, even if I'm, I think if I'm outside, I'm, I'm going to err on the side of caution and, and wear a mask if I'm closely gathered with people. I just feel like I, I think it's, I think it's, um, an overkill to some degree, but I think that's what we're going to need to get through this. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys have uh, started to get the information from different towns and so forth, but I think I heard, I'm not exactly sure where, that Memorial Day parades are going to happen in some places. Yeah. Yeah. We, okay. we actually were working on this week. Research, research. Yeah, on, the, on the North Fork, on the North Fork, there's uh, three of them every year that are all returning. And and I think all the downtown Riverhead events are coming back. The Strawberry Festival is coming back next month. That'll be a big test. And I think in Greenport Village, I think we have an update going up today. I'm pretty sure that Maritime Festival is coming back, but I haven't actually, that hasn't been filed yet. They met last night. 
Are there going to be restrictions? Do you know, or is this? I, we- I think not for the Memorial Day parade. I don't, I don't right. think so. You know, I, I'm kind of I'm with you and not with you, Joe. I'm kind of tired of the mask in, yeah. in a sense, mm-hmm. and and I I really look forward to opportunities where I don't have to wear the mask. Uh, I've been carrying it around with me. I go into the store. Uh, and, you know, I walk in, I see people wearing them and I throw it on and, you know, I'm kind of like more feeling it out right now. But there is a certain degree of like uncertainty, like what do I do in these situations? But I am not on the other extreme where I'm having mask burning parties anytime soon. That makes absolutely no sense to me why you would <laughs> want to burn a thing that I saved your lives. I mean, these masks save people's lives over the last absolutely. year. They kept people healthy. It's like you might as well go burn the airbag in your car. You know, uh, military should go burn their bulletproof vests if that's what we're doing, because it, uh, these things kept us healthy. They, I even even had a cold in the last year because I've been yeah. wearing masks. Yeah, me I too. mean, the flu season was almost non-existent this past year, and, and that demonstrates something, too. And, it, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of Asian countries where uh, mask wearing is just a normal thing when you're out in public and they really don't have the issues uh, with communicable diseases like like we do. Um, the other thing to me, I thought the New York Times did a great piece this past week where they debunked something that the, the CDC has said, which is that fewer than 10% of all transmissions have come from outdoor contact without masks. And they demonstrated that there's in fact been never been a reported transmission of an outdoor contact it's that, that they really broke down where those numbers came from with the CDC, and they were sort of faulty numbers to begin with. And, and it sort of overstates the problem to even suggest that 10% of the transmission. I think as we head into a summer, it's important to make clear that outdoors and even, you know, especially at beaches, I think you're safe without a mask now. And, and, and that's going to be a return to normalcy that, that's going to be really important for all of our communities. Yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of with Grant. I, I mean, and, and I, I I'll say that um, you know I, I was in the office the other day, and we've relaxed our max mass policy in the office for employees because um, virtually everybody's been been vaccinated. And you know what? It was kind of liberating, and it kind of felt really good not to not to worry about wearing the mask and just to be normal again. And I'm kind of I had I had been like you, Joe, I was I was saying, oh, I'm going to keep wearing it and we're going to be like the Asian countries. And, and you know, a lot of people wearing masks. I, I have to wonder if within the next week or two or month, if that's just going to kind of um, just kind of kind of re- relax a lot. And people are going to be just, you know, throwing those masks off and, and stuff. And, and I, I kind of wonder about that. I think once it starts, it's going to be like a domino and like, yeah, right now all the stores and stuff. And I went to, you know, I went out last night, I went out to, to eat and, and went to Jake's and, and everybody had their masks on and stuff. But once that starts to relax, once the, those individual places, kind of ease their rules up. I, I think a lot of people are just going to take the masks off. I would. One of my thoughts is uh, where does the uh, the percentage of folks who don't want to get vaccinated and I don't want to get into the weeds about whether they should or not. And I, that's not the point. But what is the, the deal with how many folks will not get vaccinated? Because that's going to affect all of us on on how this all works. You know, I mean, uh, that's so, uh, first so of all. You- how do, First how do you of tell? all, they should. We don't have to get into the weeds about it. They should get vaccinated. <laughs> right. They should get There's vaccinated. No weeds. So how many, weeds. I don't think the numbers are out yet, right? I mean, I mean, they're the 
it seems like there's not a great percentage of what I think maybe I saw close to 40 percent of us have at least one shot or two. Yeah. I think we're 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 going over fifty percent oh, no, okay. soon in in nationally, and I think uh, New York State's actually ahead of that curve a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm intrigued by uh, Governor Cuomo's idea that was unveiled this week, which is everybody gets uh, everybody who gets the vaccine from here forward is going to get a lottery ticket oh, yeah. that would normally right. cost twenty bucks, and you get like a one in eight chance of winning awesome. something. I would give a lottery to, tickets to the to people who are first. I, well, I know, yeah. but I'm <laughs> yeah, send me limb. mine. <laughs> I'll go out on a limb and say it. I don't know that this is going to be the politically correct thing to say, but I think the people who haven't gotten the vaccine at this point are being a little selfish. And I think the people who have gotten the vaccine to this point have thought more about they're doing it for other people as much as for themselves. So if we need to appeal to that selfishness to get them over the line and and get them vaccinated for the greater good, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And if a lottery ticket gets us another five or 10 percent, let's do it. I think that's money. Uh, To me, it's like holding a parade for the Russians after we beat them to the moon. (laughs) <laughs> you know when i when i said let's not get into the when I, when I mentioned not getting into the weeds about who does or doesn't i meant more of a fact where and again i'm i'm kind of going from a to c here i'm jumping it so i know the argument coming back will be don't tell me what i have to do yeah right absolutely and, and that's kind of why i say get into the weeds i'm with you i think everybody should get the vaccine i absolutely sure. do. Hey, hey brian how do you how do you tell the difference between somebody who's not wearing a mask because they've been vaccinated and somebody who's not wearing a mask and hasn't been vaccinated. And the other and you, thing, you, the, the right. answer is you ask them who they voted for in the last presidential <laughs> election. And what about these people getting uh, these fake vaccination cards? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some people got caught with fake, you know, so. Yeah. I think Here's an interesting million, one. This, Joe Workmeister from the, from the paper works with me. He's been on this show. He, uh, he had to go to, he went to an Islander game and had to get, Show he had he had already had both shots, but he hadn't been two weeks yet, so he had to go get a test, and he got hit with a hundred fifty dollar bill for the test that, uh, mm. oh, that he man. had to do to go to the game. That's uh, you know, triple what he paid for the ticket. Wow, yeah, that's and and I mean, I, I these are these are going to be really important questions now as we head into this next leg of the pandemic. We we aren't out of it yet. This is still important, and and I you know the thing that worries me is the talk about the variants that are coming around. And and the more that we allow the virus to hang around, the more there's a danger that the virus is going to continue to mutate and become dangerous once again for for a variety of reasons. For for decades. I mean, I was was reading something the the other day that said if we don't reach that herd immunity, and most, most scientists think now that we won't, then, you know, then then this is going to be around for for 10 years, 20 years, maybe even 30 years. And, and that's, well, that's uh, I was talking with an acquaintance who's who's uh, who's not going to get a vaccine uh, defiantly. And one of the arguments he made was, well, what now? Now you're telling me I've already got to get booster shots. No, forget it. I'm not getting a vaccine. Then I got to get booster shots. And it's like if you get the vaccine there's a less likely chance we'll all need booster shots because we can eliminate this thing the first time and you won't have variants. The the logic there's, I was about to say earlier, there's a million articles on, on very reputable websites that show that there is no risk to getting the vaccine at this point. And uh, I would hope people's uh, the better angels come forward and, and we get people out there to get the vaccine as we head into the home stretch of this thing, hopefully. 
Uh, uh, post truth era, which means there, but yeah, it's it's it it just goes to show that the post truth era grant uh, has some real repercussions, not just for our health or for our political health. I mean, we all need to get back to. Uh, we, we've got to find facts and, and work on yeah. facts and, and live live with facts. Well, we're in a post-logic era, too, is what I was yes. going to say. I mean, you know, it's just you can't uh, you just you, you can't reason with, with with certain people. You know, they just we're at a point where we have our minds made up about things. And this is not a, a right left argument. This is just all over the place. Uh, it's very hard to have conversations with people anymore. Or I should say a lot of this is online, too, because face to face, a lot of these conversations don't actually happen. Uh, but online, th- people are really difficult to reason with. I've said it many times. We desperately need Walter Cronkite at this point. <laughs> and, you know, Walter Cronkite was the arbiter at some point for the for every American that you knew you could trust Walter Cronkite. And I'm not sure that person exists anymore. And that's left us all sort of in a wasteland. So we will we will trudge on, though, and and do our part locally the best we can. Uh, We are out of time. And I want to thank our guests today, Brian Cosgrove from WLIW-FM and Grant Parpin from the Times Review Media Group, which covers Riverhead and the North Fork, and my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, thank you again. Uh, we will be back next week uh, with a new panel and talking about what's going on behind the headlines. As always, I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>